Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Renwick about his book, Digital Student Portfolios, A Whole School Approach to Connected Learning and Continuous Assessment. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Renwick about his book, Digital Student Portfolios, A Whole School Approach to Connected Learning and Continuous Assessment. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. Good to be here. I'm wondering if you, if we could begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a, I'm an elementary school principal in Mineral Point, Wisconsin. I just moved here. Previously, I was in elementary principal, assistant principal, elementary teacher for 16 years in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Um, so we made a big change this year. Um, and I would say just, let's say within the last five years, I've, I've gotten, I've become more interested in, in how technology might play a role in students' learning. Um, how can it be impactful on kids' learning versus just another thing to do? and truly integrate it with, with good instruction that enhances and could even transform instruction. So that's been my interest the past, let's say, four to five years. I'm always excited to have um, someone on the show who's who's been a teacher or who's been a principal. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what inspired you to go into education and which of your experiences um, have been most formative in uh, how you view schools. Sure. I... Uh... I initially started with working with kids when I was in high school. Um, just out of high school, I started coaching. So coaching little league softball, t-ball. I was at in my little town. I was the recreation director, so I was in charge of everything, and uh, just really enjoyed that. Didn't really think that that could be a profession for me until I I got into college and started doing the general classes. Had to select a major, and I'm like, well, let's let's try education, and so. I think just what inspired me was the kids and just being a part of their learning process was just a lot of it. A fun for me it was an enjoyment and something that I could see also making a living out of. So that's how I got an education. Because so I continued to coach through my first years in teaching basketball. I coached. Uh, I ended up becoming an athletic director at one point when I was an assistant principal. Uh, so I was involved in all kinds of sports. And I just, one thing I like about sports, it's not perfect, but one thing I like about it is just how clear and visible student performance is, their progress. Um, there's just no filtering of it. You know, there's no, it's just, it is what it is. They don't take a test to see how well they can hit a ball. They don't um, take a screener to to see what, what level of team they're going to be on. They, they actually do the work. And you can see it, and it's very clear. There's real no... Um, negotiation about it. And I think that's something that technology can bring into schools is 
making our assessments more authentic, better, um, more visible to everyone, especially the students, so that we're not, you know, we're not processing this score, this assessment result into a single number or a score, which which does not mean a lot, or certainly doesn't mean as much, especially grades. It become more about compliance and and getting the score and and the how they're doing versus what they're doing. And that's what I see kids in sports doing is they just, they love doing it. They love the what and the how they hope that they do well, but if they don't, they know they tried their best and that's okay. So how can we bring those kinds of things? And that's what really inspired to write the book is that how can we move schools forward, really my school to, to embrace these more authentic approaches to assessment. And we felt portfolio assessment might, uh, might be that approach. I really appreciate that analogy. It's it's not something that I considered myself, and it's a perfect introduction to to the rest of our conversation. So, uh, for our listeners who who may not know what portfolios are, I was wondering if you could tell us a, a bit about what what you mean by that, and what's a digital portfolio, and uh, what are some potential rationales for using these in schools. Well, so what portfolio is just it's a compilation of different learning artifacts that provide evidence of students learning and that can take many forms. It can be paper and pencil. It can be in a binder. The digital side of things, I think the biggest thing is that it starts to bring in a real audience and showcases learning in real time. Mm -hmm. So instead of collecting artifacts, collecting artifacts, reflecting on them from here to there. And then at the end of the year, the parents get to see their progress in April. Um, what if you use some kind of a digital portfolio, whether that be a blog or a website or a, a dedicated portfolio application that's built just for that to showcase that learning throughout the year? And then parents can go online and see what's happening. Uh, the school I used to work in, uh, two out of every three family, two out of every three kids um, was growing up in poverty. And so these parents were, were working two jobs. I mean, for them to take off and come in once a month even to see how their child was doing was just, it wasn't going to happen. So we also looked at that, and so we found an application that would allow the kid and the teachers to post their work. So there's different kinds of work that you can put in a portfolio. There's the, the best work portfolio or a performance portfolio where it's, this is their summative assessment. This is what they did after, you know, days or weeks of instruction. This is the final product. And here you go. This is why I'm proud of it. This is why I put it in here. This is what I'm going to work on for next time. So that's more of a product portfolio. And that's really what we focused on in our school. Uh, a lot of teachers will also use more of a progress growth portfolio where it's more them directed and they're monitoring student learning over time, but they're having conversations with the kids. They're um, pushing out that progress to the parents. Um, so like in the book, the first one is Genesis, the speech and language teacher. Mm-hmm. And she would have the kids record their own audio in the portfolio application. You record audio in the portfolio application uh, trying to speak the, the words. They might generate a newsletter, something authentic, and then read aloud that newsletter, you know, what they're learning about, and then push that to the parent through email. And then they could see it. And we had one parent who came from another state who has never, ever heard her child in a speech and language scenario, never heard this, you know, her child actually doing the work. Now she could hear him doing the work. So she was actually in tears because she had never heard him um, progress, you know, over time. And so 
whether it's a growth portfolio or a performance portfolio, what the key I think really is with portfolios when they go digital is that authentic audience and just bringing the parent into the conversation and just cluing them into what's actually going on in schools. Mm-hmm. Another teacher that I spoke with, um, she would actually record her reading conferences with each student. So she would use language, you know, responsive language of getting the student to reflect on their reading and giving feedback advice. And we forget that we live in the educator bubble that, you know, we think all people talk this way and all people know how to teach their child, and they don't. I mean, the parenting parenting does not come with a handbook. So uh, these parents were starting to hear the teacher talk, and then when they would emulate the teacher's language that they were using with their own child yeah, at home, you know. And so that's a, that's a, those are some kind of incidental benefits from the portfolio assessment is the more that we document and the more that we share, um, we're also, in a sense, educating the parent about what really matters in education. So, A couple things that I'm hearing you say is, is one, that if you're using portfolios of any kind, um, we're, we're no longer reducing students' work to, to letter grades or numerical scores. We actually get to see at least some of the work in the same way you get to see the work right. if you go to a sports practice or a game. Um, mm-hmm. the benefits of, of going digital mean that uh, you can include different kinds of artifacts. And so you're no longer limited to, to photographs or and to paper and pencil, but you can include audio and video recordings, um, different kinds yep. of multimedia. Even beyond that, uh, parents can be seeing it throughout the year. And so there's no need yep. to wait until the end of the year. They can be continually uh, updated on, on what students uh, have mastered and how they are progressing. Is, is that fair to say? That would be fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that uh, the staff you're working with um, as you're writing this book, you all decided to use showcase portfolios. And so I'm wondering a little bit about um, how you all came to that decision as opposed to focus on progress or process. Um, I think it was a good entry point to introduce portfolio assessment the teachers already had units of study developed or, or had some kind of an extended lesson plan series, you know, for their instruction. So so the shift was small. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that for leaders that the smart thing to do is do a small shift first. Don't change everything. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, we basically framed it as you've got this great work. Just post it online. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, put it on the blogger. Put it on this portfolio app so the parents can see it, you know. Um, and that was that was an easier shift than saying, okay, teachers, we're going to use this portfolio application and you're going to be putting your running records on there. You're going to be setting goals with the kids. You're going, you know, that would really have required a significant change in practice. You know, my change, the initial was more technical mm-hmm. and which though can then lead to more cultural kind of whole shifts in, in school practice. But that takes a lot more time. And I really wanted to start with success. Um, with a new kind of initiative, uh, that was one thing that came up is it seems like one more thing to do. Mm-hmm. So the less that leaders can make these things, make the new seem normal, as they say, um, and, and smaller shifts in the beginning, really build on that success. And that's what really drove in our final year, adopting a, a platform as a whole school, um, really looking at more progress portfolios then is because of the feedback the teachers were getting from the parents, from the kids about just, how much they appreciated knowing how they're learning and, and allowing kids to take some time to reflect on their work. That um, that success breeded, I would say, more confidence 
and in doing more of that kind of work. You begin the book actually with um, some detailed explanations of assessment and, and digital literacy and uh, your theory of change in schools. I'm wondering if you can explain uh, these three things and how they, they ground the conversation uh, about digital portfolios in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've learned as an administrator is to never assume. Mm-hmm. And I remember one staff meeting, uh, we were talking about pedagogy, and one teacher kind of whispered, what's pedagogy? So we just assume this because we all, you know, again, um, the bottom line is we shouldn't assume. So that's why I took some time in the book to just really explain assessment literacy. Um, You know, this is formative versus summative. Give some examples. You know, the practice and when we're coaching is formative. It doesn't, it's all about getting to become the best we can be, whereas the summative is the game. Mm -hmm. And providing analogies, you know, I think that really, I, I didn't want to assume the reader knew that at all. Um, so that's why I included that in the book. The change literacy was more geared toward the teachers, well, really everyone. Um, again, going back to starting small. So maybe you get two teachers piloting it the first year. That's how it got started in our building. Um, they share their findings, and they either went well or it didn't. If it went well, let's try it you know, a bit broader. Let's try it, let's pilot it, you know, do more of a full pilot. Um, so I don't think we can go slow enough with this kind of thing. Um, you know, taking the time, the early adopters will want to embrace it, allow them to embrace it. But I think creating some structures, too, um, once we get going, you know, making sure that the technology is not the driver, but that the the, uh, the learning and the teaching are in and seeing how the technology can support it. Uh, in terms of digital literacy, that's where that audience comes in and that purpose and providing that access for each classroom, you've got to have the technology's got to work. I found that out real quickly. If your wireless is not robust, if mm-hmm. if the tool you're using doesn't make things easy for the teacher to get that, you know, it's gonna it's gonna go down in flames. Um, and that was some initial struggles we had. Wireless just wasn't allowing us to upload quickly a video that the kid created. So so that had to be fixed. And then once we got there, really talking about the purpose of why we're doing this. This is not to do technology. It's to give students a broader audience and to be more reflective and metacognitive about their work. Um, you know, when that learning goes live, I mean, those kids take it really seriously. I was, I walked into one first grade classroom and it was a pretty active class. They were just on the mark. They were all putting their best effort into their writing. And I just said to the teacher, wow, what's going on? She's like, well, they know what's going to go in their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so that, that really deepened the, the motivation and, because they're going to, it's not just the teacher that's going to see their work, you know, it's going to be other people. So it means something. Um, it, it's, it's permanent, and it's not just handed into the basket. It's got meaning to it. Uh, but anyway, the digital side of things, that's where that really comes in. Is it, um, it, it provides that access to that audience that wouldn't be there before. And it also teaches digital citizenship. You know, we, we talk about what do we post, what do we don't. Um, is it good to have a digital footprint, a positive one in life? And um, that that should be a part of school now, is that digital literacy and seeing uh, thinkers, you know, um, about how we represent ourselves online. I'm interested to learn a little bit more about... Um what your ideal audience was at, at your school. Um, so uh, obviously the stakes get raised as more and more people have a chance to see the work, right? And it's a great first step to just have parents 
uh, fully aware of what's happening. Um, but perhaps you could share outside of the family. That's so easy sure. given that the work is online. And so I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you all decided to do that, um, what kinds of considerations did you all make around audience, particularly because uh, mm-hmm. your students were um, in elementary school? Well, what I did was I made a minimum requirement. And instead of saying you will all do this amount, you know, let's agree we can do this, this amount. So we said six times a year you're going to post a piece of student writing, whether that's, you know, it can be multimedia, it can be, you know, paper, pencil, whatever, and then share it with the parent and take the time to sit with each child and just ask them, what did you do well? Um, why do you think that? What do you want to work on next time? Again, the performance portfolio. Um, I think the most important audience we found through this is the students themselves mm-hmm. because they're taking the time to think about their thinking and being metacognitive that they're coming back to their work and they are an audience to themselves. And they're becoming more self-critical and starting to internalize criteria of what makes good work. So that might be the most important audience. Now, coupling that, though, with the families, it kind of, they, they work in tandem. One is not unrelated to the other. They're not mutually exclusive. So, um, but eventually we found kids becoming more thinking about their own work and what they're producing. I saw it with my own kids. My kids would go to my school, and so I would get notifications about every six weeks about their writing. And just the growth that, for example, my daughter was making um, in first grade was just unbelievable. Um, and I think it was just it came down. It really came down to those conversations between the teacher and the student. I think, and that goes back to then another audience is that teacher. So that teacher is having conversations as they're uploading work and why they're uploading it. That teacher is getting feedback from that child, and now she or he is thinking about, okay, so a lot of my kids need to work on uh, more word choice. Okay, so that means I need to design some lessons around uh, good text that will teach word choice. Um, so it informs the instruction as well as the, um, the families and the student. So it's almost like a, a, a triangle of, partnership, teacher, the student, the family, um, all kind of on the same page. We didn't really get, I did not require teachers to go beyond that. Some did. The global read is coming up in October, and so some teachers really got into that. And it wasn't necessarily a portfolio. However, students could post work into, like, Edmodo, into other classrooms. And so that school-to-school sharing started to happen um, but we were not there yet. Um, and that's really what the book is about. It's just getting started and, and that, that process to getting to success. I do know of like one teacher who she works with all of gifted, gifted and talented kids in a, in a larger district in New Orleans. And so it's hard to find an audience for them because they're at such a high level cognitively. So she got them on kid blog. And so then she signed all these kids up on kid blog and they do their weekly reflections about their learning and posting their work. So then the gifted kids could all talk to each other in the comments, even though they're in different schools. Mm-hmm. Now they have an audience they feel like that, you know, kind of at their level of conversation. So that was an interesting way to again, provide that audience, that peer audience, um, where kids are commenting on each other's work um, and getting, I would say, better feedback. You, you mentioned the power of 
stopping every once in a while and just looking at what you've done and really thinking about it. That that is really powerful learning. Um, but I also imagine that takes some time. And so if, if yeah. you're now setting aside that time to do regular reflection, mm-hmm. um, maybe there's yeah. less time for a text that you'd normally read or a math unit you'd normally do or a list of spelling words you'd normally cover. And so I'm wondering how you sort of approach that dilemma in terms of like covering more content, introducing more ideas, yeah or focusing on less uh, in order to create that opening for reflection. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a huge challenge, and every district's different. I'm moving from a district that had really didn't have any common planning time built into a district that has it every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and time is huge. Time is the most important factor. And how you use that time, of course, is, is critical too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's, I think that's why maybe I didn't push as much towards more like growth progress portfolios it's because it's due the teachers didn't have time mm-hmm. and if they wanted to explore that so one thing we did was we um um offered after school training and the teachers could post their own questions with them what did they want to know on a google form we would print those responses out and that would be our agenda so their time was well spent it was on what they needed and if they wanted to come to three out of the six that was great we, we tried to compensate them but they got what they needed and it wasn't just a a module that was directed by me or, or anyone else. In terms of making time for reflection and, and, that it, and just being more mindful about our learning, we just had to have a lot of conversations about what is essential and what is not. One thing that we I would bring up and try to do it in a respectful tone but still pointing it out is that morning work kind of stuff, but come in and do this half sheet on grammar or this half sheet on math facts, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to really have some conversations with the staff is, is that essential? Um, If you took that away, what would happen? And um, and once you know, some teachers did that, they would say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to do my silent reading time in the morning because then that's that's high impact. It's going to help kids learn. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm getting rid of the extra sheets. I have less work for myself. Um, So that was big. A selling point for, I think, our teachers, too, is recognizing that when we're keeping evidence of student learning across the year, that evidence can also serve into their own evaluation. So in our state, you've got to have so many artifacts from student learning in your, yes, in your own portfolio. It's not a true portfolio. It's, it's, a, it's an evaluation compliance thing. But those artifacts were kind of did double duty. They could also use those to make a case for why they felt they were this level of a teacher. You know, they didn't have to come up with more stuff because it's already been digitized. So we'd have trainings on how to pull some of those artifacts from the kids' portfolios and put it into their own portfolios. And so that was a huge selling point now that you bring it up is that they weren't just doing it for, for the kids. They were doing it for themselves, too. I mean, that's something I'm thinking about as I hear you say more and more is really everyone is benefiting from this. You, you haven't said this explicitly, but I would imagine that it's a lot easier for teachers to write their report card comments and facilitate fall conferences if there's a yes. if the portfolio is there. Yep. I mean, you, I, I'm just thinking, as you mentioned that, Trevor, I'm thinking about a, a fourth grade teacher who did the very thing. She would look at the comments that they would have. She would actually comment on the kids' work. They would, he would he or she would put it in there, and they would reflect on the comments, and then she would comment back to kind of get that kid to think even deeper, and then they would respond again. And so, yeah, you're right. She would look at those comments that they made, and she could even copy and paste some of those things. Like when this child said blank, it showed me that they were being very 
deliberate in their practice and are slowing down. Mm-hmm. So you actually get some behavioral kinds of things in there too, some responsibility. Um, so yes, it, it does. Yes, and we still had grades. Uh, we moved from letter grades to standard-based grading, and I'm not suggesting get rid of grades. We approach this as a, this is something that's going to support our professional judgments when we have to, like, place kids in interventions or even in special ed. This is an extra piece of data for triangulating. You know, we've got lots of summative. We've got a lot of interim screener benchmark. Don't have a lot of documented formative assessment, but assessment for learning just often isn't documented consistently. And so that also provided that, I guess, that third leg of the stool of the assessment uh, triangulation um, just to make the case that, yes, in fact, this child is where they're at. I'm wondering um, how portfolios took different forms across different grade levels or if uh, certain students were interested in certain ideas or certain teachers were interested in certain ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what did all these portfolios look like? Uh, were there some different forms? We started with trying some different tools. It was kind of it was mandated by me, and I would say that's one mistake I made was not allowing it to grow more organically. Um, so we tried a couple of different tools. It just didn't really work out. The purpose was kind of unclear. And so there were some frustrations there um, on all of our ends. Um, we finally found a tool that we really liked. That um, So we had a classroom teacher and then a specialist try it out. And so, and they brought it back to the group and said, this is a really great tool. And... Um, we all tried it. We all had to train. And it was pretty widely adopted now. As I leave, they're going to be doing K-5, the same portfolio tool. Um, so we're really lucky in that sense. However, there are a few teachers who came to me. I know one in particular was like, I really like the tool we used to use. Can I use that to inform my instruction? But I'll still look into the classroom, you know, portfolios. So... Um, so there was that latitude. I think that's fine. I think the most important thing here is not the technology, but are the tools being used to help students progress and achieve their goals? That's mm-hmm. the priority. That said, there is some a lot of benefits to the consistency of the same tool. So we purchased a, a more premium version of that portfolio, and so now that students are students' work can be archived to K five, and so a parent, a kid can look back four years down the road and see how they've progressed. That's going to be pretty cool. Um, but like I said, the most important thing is that the, the child is seeing their growth over time and, and has opportunities to celebrate their learning um, to a wider audience. Now, I should mention this, this takes a, a long time to get there. And so I'm wondering, uh, can you share some of the milestones um, from that time period? Sure. Yeah, I think I think, yeah, I would be asked the first two years listed in the book are like messing around, floundering almost. <laughs> so we almost really took four, if not five years, to get to where we want get to get to where it was. I would say institutionalized. Um, but I would say the first. The first year was more when we found good success was when we did more of a developmental pilot, a very small group of teachers just trying it out. And that proved itself to be a good decision versus everyone doing it with a certain tool. 
And so they brought back then that information about what was successful about it, what didn't work to the staff instead of me as the principal saying. So then the second year, which would have been last year, yes, last year, was the full pilot. And that's, and again, this isn't in the book. This is like after the book. So, um, but the concept is the same. Is if you can introduce it in small doses, the second year really developing it with kind of like one tool, let's really give it a shot. And then that third year really making a decision as a staff. We feel good. We've really taken our time. We've, um, this is a deliberate decision. There's no need to rush it. And I'm glad we didn't as I had made those mistakes in the past. So that, so it, it takes, I would say a minimum three years to, to, to really get it running school-wide three to five. I really appreciate your, your candor and talking about, uh, you know, you're, you're really happy you did some things the way that you did them. There were other things that you might do differently. Um, are there any other lessons that, that you've learned from, from trying to implement digital portfolios at your school that you would share with other school leaders? I think start with your willing. Start with the people who are most interested in exploring that. So right now I'm in a new school, and I would say two weeks in, um, a teacher emailed me and said, I'd like to do portfolios. And so then I'm thinking back, you know, A, I'm not, we're not doing this whole staff. Uh, B, we want to really frame this to make sure that we're not leading. So don't lead with the technology is the other advice I would say. Uh, start small, start with the willing, don't lead with the technology. So right now we had conversations about let's try this tool in this grade level of people interested. And let's try this other tool in this, you know, but didn't really have conversations among everyone about why we don't want to do portfolios. So starting with why and then saying how is this going to look in practice and then what is it we're going to use and just making sure that the technology doesn't take priority over the pedagogy, the, the craft of teaching, and then it's in fact supporting it and, and hopefully even transforming it uh, down the line. But I think really being patient and allowing it to play out, but um, allowing the teachers to, if they've got the enthusiasm, allowing them to go for it. Uh, even if you may not love the tool itself, who knows? You know, allow them to take the risk, give them some autonomy in, in that. They're more likely to own it. They are your best sales. Your teachers are your best salespeople in the school. Um, that's I found that too. So, um, yeah. So those are a few ideas, I guess. Is start slow, start small. Lead with the t- lead with the instruction and um, allow the change to happen organically, but with your kind of guiding hand, or just keeping the focus on the learning. You you mentioned you know uh, you're in one place at your old school with portfolios. You're you're pretty far along on the path, and then you change schools, and you're you're really starting from the beginning again. Uh, mm-hmm. It may be tempting uh, to try and to go really far, really fast into portfolios with your new staff. Um, how do you remind yourself that uh, that's not the right thing to do? Almost you almost have to put like one of those road signs slow in your office, you know, and you're always looking at it because, you know, I, I don't think you can go slow enough. Take, you know, with these kinds of changes, good instruction is good instruction. And so just because you don't add a portfolio tool or something the first year, it doesn't mean the kids aren't learning. Change, I think, has got to be on people's terms. It can't be a mandate. They've got to have some input and ownership. Um, not to say if, you know, you're two, two years down the road, you know, you've got overwhelming evidence. 
Yeah, go for it. Go for it on it. But um, people's beliefs have to change along with it. And changing people's beliefs is not the same as changing, introducing a tool. Uh, tools come and go. Um, our mindsets about how they might work take a long time. So uh, yeah, I've learned the hard way. I, I, to be honest, I am not tempted to go fast. The five years, the five years I was before this, and I think there's one or two teachers that would like to go faster, and and so we're kind of on opposite ends. But I would rather be on this end because it's not me driving the change; it's the teachers themselves, mm-hmm. and that I think that's important. If if readers could have just one takeaway from your book, uh, what would you hope it would be? Maybe one takeaway is kids are more than a score or a grade. But if you don't have some kind of system in place to document that, then that's just talk. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just say, well, kids are more than a score, but you continue to use grades and exclusively or quizzes, again, those are fine things. But if that's all you're using for assessment and you're not looking at, you know, authentic pieces, that's just talk. You know, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. So what are you going to actually do to change that? And to really document formative assessment in a way that promotes student growth and helps them on the kids' terms, you know, take their own learning journey toward toward becoming experts in something. Um, facilitating that kind of assessment is actually a lot of work, um, but it's worth it. And I think um, I think the benefit. Every t- I, I'm doing actually a new book with ASCD, Digital Student Portfolios in Action. So it's actual much more of kind of a toolkit, a guide toward using these. And um, when I talk to teachers over and over and over, um, the enthusiasm for using more authentic assessments and portfolio assessments is very clear. And I think it's because they can actually see the impact of their, of their instruction on student learning day-to-day, week-to-week. They don't have to wait for a score. Um, they can really uncover so much more about that student's thinking than they could maybe through a quiz, you know, a, a multiple choice test. Um, they can really kind of get into the mind of the kid, and that, and they it just kind of feeds into it's just kind of a feedback loop. I want more feedback loop. I want more of it. I want more of it, and it just becomes a habit. So that's the one takeaway. I think it's kind of a long one, but um, you know, with today's technology, there's no reason to to only rely on uh, digits and letters. Uh, Matt, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today, so I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Um, first, uh, what are three books that, that you might recommend if our listeners have enjoyed our conversation today? Mm-hmm. Well, related to portfolios, uh, the book that kind of that really got me thinking about digital portfolios is, is more than just uploading artifacts online, but it actually can impact learning. The book, Curriculum 21, from ASCD, uh, it's edited by Heidi Hayes-Jacobs. And in that book, there's a chapter by uh, David Nuligadoella, and it's just about digital portfolios and curriculum. And so how you can design curriculum with the end in mind and how portfolios can support that. Um, that there's a really, it's, a, it's a good chapter, I think, to get a, a, a good understanding about it. So Curriculum 21 is one. I would say another one would be Embedded Formative Assessment by Dylan Willem, Dylan William. He, I think he's one of the founders of, or not founders, but he, they wrote a pretty 
impactful article inside the black box about formative assessment, feedback, clarity of goals, self-assessment. And so in that book, um, it's just kind of an update of everything he knows. It gives you five ways to embed formative assessment instruction. And just a lot of doable stuff that you can just do tomorrow. A very practical, uh, easy to read. Um, so embedded formative assessment is another one. I would say a third one, um, to go specific around curriculum, I really liked uh, David Perkins' FutureWise. And he just talks about, you know, what's essential for kids' lives today, tomorrow, but in the future, and really questioning all of these standards. Do we need them all? What's essential? What is that kid going to need to be a successful adult, but also enjoy the learning now? And so it's just a, it's, a, it's almost like a conversation that he talks about life-worthy learning and what does it mean to have life-worthy learning, to make learning relevant and meaningful. Um, really doesn't talk about technology a lot, but just the concept behind the curriculum. So Curriculum 21, Embedded Formative Assessment, and TeacherWise, three great books that I have kind of at my side wherever I'm at, my office or wherever. Excellent. Well, I, I look forward to reading those. Um, finally, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit more about that new book you're working on and any other projects. Sure. Uh, how can we all uh, follow your work? Well, right now I'm not blogging right now. I've taken a month off because I'm working on that book. And there's another project I'm working on about uh, developing kids to be independent learners. Um, but you can go to my blog at readingbyexample.com. And I'm also on Twitter at readbyexample. So more about literacy, leadership, technology. I also have a website. Just It has just a lot of my credentials and, and articles and things like that, uh, mattrenwick.com. So you can reach me that way as well. We also look forward to uh, to following your work online um, and to see what you do with uh, the new school you'll be working with. Matt, uh, oh, thanks. Thank you, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Trevor. I enjoyed it too. All right, take care. Mm-hmm.